Hi, ACAC family. This is Pastor Allen. You know, when it comes to a transition in leadership or leadership succession, it's never easy. And whether that would be the case in a business or even a church. Three years ago, this congregation, Allegheny Center Alliance Church, went through a transition in leadership. For 36 years, Pastor Rock Dilliman was the lead pastor here at ACAC in the North Side. And I know for many of you who are listening and watching right now, you're very familiar with Pastor Rock's prophetic voice and his leadership and personality. But I also recognize today that there are many of you who are not. You're fairly new to the ACAC family and have come in the last three years. So it is because of that I wanted to take the opportunity to introduce him to you and to remind us at what a gift it is and how God has blessed us during this season of leadership transition. As I talked to other pastors and even did so last week at a conference, they always find it amazing that here Pastor Rock, his wife Karen and family worship still at ACAC. He's preaching this weekend that we're friends. We had lunch actually this past week. That is not something to take for granted. And it's not something that happens often, unfortunately. But here we are today, and I am going to ask that you welcome and receive ACAC's Pastor Emeritus, Pastor Rock Dilliman. <clears throat> This morning I went up to the new green room and the first thing I saw because it was right there in front of my face was this large bottle of downy wrinkle releaser. <laughs> and I just want you to know ain't no way I'm spraying this on my face <laughs> so that I look better for the camera. I mean, I think there's some ageism at work here, and we really, really need to deal with it. Pastor Allen told you that we had lunch together this week. What he didn't tell you was that he showed up with no cash at a cash-only restaurant <laughs> for us to have lunch. He had to rely on the old re retired guy to pick up his tab. So you can't always believe what you hear. <laughs> when I was given the assignment of speaking on following the leading of the Holy Spirit, I was excited because there is no more important topic that the church can deal with than following the leading of the Holy Spirit because if the church doesn't get that right, it won't get anything else right. And if it gets that right, everything else will fall into place and know the Lord's blessing. But it's such a large topic, I can't do it justice in just one teaching. And so Pastor Allen and I are going to get together in the next week or so, and we're going to tape a conversation between the two of us about practical ways that you can learn how to develop your ability to sense the voice of the Holy Spirit leading you in your life. So you'll want to watch for that practical application. Today I want to unpack two familiar passages of Scripture. But as I used to say often, familiarity is sometimes the greatest barrier to understanding. 
Because once we've heard something numerous times, we assume we understand it, and that's not always the case. The first passage comes from the Old Testament, from the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, verse 6. Then he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, human might, nor by power, human power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then from the New Testament, a promise from Jesus, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. I've entitled today's teaching, Going with the Power. Let's unite our hearts together in prayer. Father, we desperately need to hear from you. We've spent our week inundated with the voices of unbelief, with the strident voices of unbelief. We desperately need to hear from you. We are also regularly bombarded with strident voices of false doctrine and false teaching. And so today we need to hear your truth. Toward that end, I pray that your spirit would equip me for this never-to-be-repeated moment in time so that the words of my mouth and the responses of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And as always, I pray that in the name of Jesus, and I pray it with confidence because you are good. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice together today, may the Lord be with you. Years ago, the list of leading ball carriers in collegiate football included a halfback from St. Olaf's College in Northfield, Minnesota. Now, if you're at all familiar with St. Olaf's, and you probably aren't, it is best known for its vocal and musical ensembles, not its football team. So this development caught the attention of national sports writers who are always looking for a fresh story and a new angle. And one such writer traveled to Northfield to interview this halfback's coach. And he asked him a question that the coach had always and often been asked, to what do you attribute that young man's success? And the coach responded candidly, I I don't really think I can answer that, even though I'm asked that question all the time. You see, the young man isn't particularly elusive. He doesn't have what we call quick feet. He doesn't possess blazing speed. And he isn't particularly big or strong. The only explanation I can offer for his success is he seems to have this innate uncanny ability to see where his linemen are going to create an opening, patiently wait for them to do that, and then follow their lead through that opening. If I had to summarize it, he said, I would say the key to his success is he knows where the power is going and he goes with it. Now, Scripture makes it clear that that same power dynamic has an application in God's work, in the work of God's kingdom. And understanding and applying that dynamic is indispensable 
if we hope to truly follow Jesus in the authentic, empowered, world-impacting manner he intended. In God's kingdom, spiritual power flows through those who can discern where the Spirit is leading, wait for the Spirit's timing, and confidently follow his lead. God's power flows through those who know where the power is going and go with it. Now, that principle was the basis for God's word as we read it in Zechariah. He was speaking to a common man. The leader of the people was not a charismatic personality, just a common man. And God's people were few in number, and they faced a monumental, seemingly impossible task. From a human perspective, they appeared to be ticketed for certain failure. If Vegas had been giving odds back then, they wouldn't have even established a betting line. Nobody bets on a sure loser. And aware of all that, God spoke to his people words that they needed to hear and more importantly, take to heart. Not by human might, but by my spirit. Now that declaration accomplished two things. First of all, it gave God's people an encouraging promise. You can do this. Others may deem it impossible, but you can do this. And it also gave them a sobering precaution. But there's only one way you can do this. Only one way. Now, sadly, the history of Israel testifies that God's encouraging promise was often forgotten or brushed aside in unbelief. And his sobering precaution... It was often ignored in misguided arrogance and careless presumption. Israel had received more truth than all other nations combined, literally. And there were certainly moments when they flourished because they recognized their own inadequacy and they took what God had granted them. But more often than not, they floundered spiritually, politically, and economically because they overestimated their own adequacy and they simply took God for granted. And God's on record. He recorded both their infrequent successes and their far too frequent failures for our instruction so that we could learn from them. But as any experienced teacher will testify, a lesson offered isn't automatically a lesson learned, even when the teacher is God himself. And an honest reading of church history affirms that God's people haven't always learned from Israel's mistakes. The truth is they've more often than not repeated them. In this nation, much of the professing church appears to have forgotten the promise and ignored the warning. In many places, the professing church appears to have put its confidence in human personality, human ability, human ingenuity, human thinking, and human systems of power rather than the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a rather broad, sweeping, judgmental statement. But I'm confident that in making it, I'm not guilty of exaggeration, hyperbole, and here's why. Scripture says the fruit of our activities reveals the root of those activities. By their fruits, you will know them. 
And in many places, the fruit of church activity clearly points to a corrupted root system because the fruit bears little to no resemblance to the fruit of the Spirit. More often than not, it resembles the things that God has condemned rather than the things that God has commanded. In many places in the American church, human professionalism has replaced spirit power. Human tradition has replaced God's truth. Political idolatry has replaced prophetic influence. You can't be a political idolater and still have a prophetic influence. A concern for just us has replaced a concern for justice. And a thinly disguised white supremacy has displaced the supremacy of Christ. That's been going on in the American church since America's inception, if you read history. Nationalistic myths that portray America like it's the second version of Israel have replaced biblical narratives. God is essentially viewed as our nation's tribal war deity and the protector of empire rather than the prince of peace who loves the world and protects the weak. Religious entertainment has replaced spiritual transformation. Self-promoting celebrity leadership has replaced self-effacing servant leadership. Political nationalism has replaced a nation of priests, what we were called to be. Resentment of those evil others has replaced repentance of our own sins. And whining about persecution has replaced winning people to Christ. In far too many places, the professing assemble to vilify those who commit a short list of sins that they don't personally struggle with while they turn a blind eye to the longer list of sins they heartily embrace and practice. Culture wars replace spiritual warfare. Political weapons replace the weapons of the spirit. And both culture and politics interpret scripture rather than scripture interpreting them both. In far too many places, we speak casually of spiritual things we do not know, judge hearts we cannot know, attach God's name to idols we know too well, sing enthusiastically of things we've never experienced, declare promises we do not keep, and claim a power we do not possess, all in the name of a God we claim to know well but clearly don't know well enough. In short, despite another sobering warning from Jesus, one he repeated frequently, in the American church it appears in many places the leaven of the Pharisees has replaced a life of power. I would remind you the Pharisees were the Bible-reading, Bible-quoting, frequently-worshipping patriots of Israel, and they couldn't crucify Jesus quick enough. In much of the American church, we don't know where the Spirit is going, and we certainly aren't going with it because the fruit of the Spirit is not political idolatry white supremacy, so-called Christian nationalism, bigotry, consumerism, materialism, and addiction. 
And those things aren't just in the world, friend. Those things are in the church. As far back as the 1950s, an Alliance pastor and American prophet, A.W. Tozer, saw this trend developing. And in a piercing observation, he suggested, quote, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. History has affirmed Tozer's observation. It was accurate back in the 50s when he made it, and I suspect it's doubly accurate today. And that's tragic because when we substitute human might for the spirit, we accept as normal a state of Christian living that is anything but normal. It's average, but average isn't normal. God doesn't grade on the curve. A normal Christian life in ministry is one impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. That's the normal Christian life. That's not the exceptional Christian life. That's not the life meant for just a few. That is the normal Christian life, a life impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. And just doing our own stuff and throwing a lot of stuff at the wall to see if anything sticks and then asking God to bless our stuff, that's not the normal Christian life, individually or corporately. Dr. Martin Luther King observed that before we can really understand God's principles, we need to see them fleshed out in human personality. We need to see them incarnated in another person. And in that regard, understanding the spirit-empowered life requires a model, and the best model is Jesus. If I were to ask you, how is it that Jesus always knew just the right thing to say, just the right thing to do? How was it that Jesus always was aware of God's timing? How was it that when Jesus spoke, people sensed authority and power and something different? And something new. And if I were to ask, how was that possible? I suspect most people would answer, well, it's because he was God in human flesh, fully God and fully man. And that answer is partially correct. But partially correct isn't correct, it's incomplete. A more complete answer can be found in the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. And there, even though it must have sounded incredibly odd to the prophet, he told us that the promised Messiah, even though he would be God in human flesh, truly God and truly man, would not rely upon his own abilities and what he could see and what he could hear. He wouldn't rely upon his own judgment. Instead, the prophet said, he would be led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus understood that, and Jesus fulfilled that. That's why he didn't commence his public ministry until the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism. And then after the Holy Spirit came upon him, we read that he was immediately led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And from that point forward, everything Jesus did was spirit-initiated. He said, I only say what the Spirit tells me to say. I only do what the Spirit tells me to do. 
When he cast out demons, he said, I do it by the finger of God. That's an Old Testament term for the Holy Spirit. His declarations indicated he was reliant upon the Holy Spirit for his timing. Everything Jesus did was spirit-initiated. In short, Jesus knew where the power was going, and Jesus went with it. He knew how to discern the Spirit's voice, how to wait for the Spirit's timing, and how to follow the Spirit's leading. And friend, I'd like to suggest if Jesus didn't attempt to do God's work, apart from the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we will never do God's work apart from the empowering of the Holy Spirit. You're not better than Jesus. Ask your wife. (laughs) Ask your husband. Come on, we need to be equal opportunity offenders. If you're parents, ask your children. See, God's word and Jesus' example beg the question, so why are God's people so vulnerable to relying on their own might, their own wits, their own personality, their own agenda rather than God's spirit? After all, I seriously doubt most believers set out to do that. Well, as is often the case when we miss God's mark, I suspect there are a host of reasons. Number one, some believers have been poorly taught. The church they attend teaches them that the Holy Spirit essentially went into retirement after the Bible was completed, that the Holy Spirit no longer leads personally and no longer speaks, that God gave us what we needed to know in writing and that's it. As if God left us a book but didn't leave a person to help us interpret the book and apply the book. So that's bad theology. Others have been made skeptical of the work of the Holy Spirit or even fearful because they've observed foolishness, religious fraud, and religious abuse all carried out in the name of the Holy Spirit. It's staggering the amount of abuse that has taken place inside the walls of American churches, abuse that began with these words, God's Spirit showed me. God told me, God told me that you're to do this. See, Satan knows if he wants to drive God's people away from the authentic, just raise up a few examples of the ridiculous, and then the pendulum will swing too far. Other people miss the power of the Spirit because they really only want God to tinker at the edges of their life. They don't want him intruding at the core of their life. They want Jesus as a value-added commodity, make their good life even a little bit better. Some are lazy. They prefer to coast in their walk with God rather than work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And all of us can be seduced by that stubborn thing called human pride and self-sufficiency. But I suspect we also forfeit power and settle for less than what God intended because we've embraced some faulty definitions. You know, you you need to get your definitions correct in life and in Scripture or else you're going to get off onto damaging detours. And specifically, I'm talking about a biblical definition of the word power. 
You see, using the words that God uses doesn't guarantee we are thinking the things that God is thinking. We use God's words all the time in ways that God never intended. And, and frankly, I think we use God's name in vain an awful, awful lot. You attach God's name to your politics or your economic agenda or whatever, you're probably using God's name in vain, all while you profess to be somebody who respects the commandments of God. You see, we filter God's words through our compromised human thinking, thinking that has been compromised by sin, our senses, our experiences, culture, bad teaching, and the lies of the enemy. And so our concepts of power are highly corrupted. So let me suggest a working definition of power that Zechariah was speaking of and that Jesus was speaking of. In God's kingdom, power is the ability to accomplish God's purposes. Simple. The ability to accomplish God's purposes. It's not the ability to impose our will on another human being or impose our will on God. To speak it into existence as if God is our houseboy and has to do whatever we say. It's not the ability to order every event of our life with God-like sovereignty. It's not the ability to will away, speak away every tragedy, loss, heartache, or illness. It's not the ability to defeat our political opponents. It's the ability to accomplish God's purposes. And God's purposes for his people involve two things. God wants to get the world out of us, that's holiness, and he wants to get us into the world, that's mission. Now, understanding power from God's perspective will help us to escape the compromised, immature, undiscerning concepts of spirit power that are far too common. A proper understanding of power in God's kingdom leads us to realize that spirit power involves more than casting out demons, working miracles of healing, speaking in other tongues, or prophetic speaking. It does at times involve any and all of those. But on an individual level, spirit power is also demonstrated when we grow in grace and in the knowledge of God, when we overcome our old debilitating habits, when we reject reject evil thoughts and emotions toward others, when we control the words that fall from our mouths and the memes that we post on social media, when we reject resentment, when we repent of bigotry, when we extend grace, when we return good for evil, when we suffer with patience, when we serve quietly with joy. Those are manifestations of spirit power. Spirit power isn't all about flash and splash. It's about faithfulness. You see, the power of the Spirit was intended to produce our personal and corporate holiness. And that's another word that's often misunderstood. We hear holiness and we think of a level of moral perfection that is unattainable. We hear God say, be holy as I am holy, and we say, I can't do that. But to be holy is simply to be whole, lacking nothing. So when God said, you're to be perfect as I am perfect, you're to be holy as I am holy, he was saying, I'm complete as your creator, and I've made a way whereby you can be complete as my creation. 
I'm everything your God should be, and you can be everything your God intended you to be. You can be whole. Now, all of us want wholeness in our life, but we often fail to recognize where it's found. We look for it in stuff. We look for it in sex. We look for it in status, but it isn't found there. It's found in an unexpected place. It's found in surrender. When you release control of your life to God, when you live under new management with an acute sense of ongoing dependence, you are laying the foundation for power and for wholeness, holiness, because the greatest barrier to spirit power is self-reliance and self-will. The Democrats aren't keeping you from God. The Republicans aren't keeping you from God. You're the only one that can keep you from God. See, we as humans tend to associate surrender with weakness and loss. But in God's kingdom, surrender is the key to strength and gain. Took me years following Jesus before I understood that God's commands to surrender are more offers than demands. God calls us to surrender and we intuitively feel like he's demanding something of us and wants to take something from us. No, all he wants to take from you is the junk you're holding on to so that he can place his treasure in that open hand. God's commands are offers. They aren't demands. As for the second purpose of God's power, our mission in the world, Time only permits me to say two things. One, to be effective and empowered, our ministry activities must have their genesis in a conscious, intentional, ongoing, constantly maturing process of learning to hear, discern, and follow the voice of the Spirit. When church leadership meets, it does not meet to pull together everybody's collective wisdom and come up with an answer. It assembles to wait together upon the leading of the Holy Spirit to do what God reveals. Big, big, big difference. And while that goes on, everything is to be tested in the light of Scripture. See, I say that to say that power doesn't flow from copying what some other congregation did and then they experience growth. It doesn't come from applying the principles of church growth. I often tell people, when I came to ACAC 39 years ago, everything church growth said you needed, we didn't have. So I quit reading church growth stuff. I never liked it anyhow and just said, Spirit of God, what do you want us to do? Power doesn't flow from following the tenets of business and psychology. And power doesn't flow from seeking a political upper hand. And it certainly doesn't flow from repeating what was done back in the good old days because they weren't that good. They seem good because we've forgotten all the bad stuff from back then. People say, I want to see the American church return to what it once was. I don't. It was a hot mess. <laughs> and it still is, frankly. The longer I live, the more I see why Jesus said, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, I never knew you. And a lot of those folks are sitting in churches today. I believe the Holy Spirit has a unique strategy for every congregation because every congregation is unique. And where people seek that leading, 
They will know power, provision. Second, as far as our mission in the world, serving the despised, serving the dying, serving the overlooked, serving the poor, serving the needy, those society sees as unimportant, serving the victims of oppression, those things exhibit more true spirit power than a busload of religious con men and women dispensing prosperity snake oil, confidently binding your debt if you send in a big enough gift to prime the pump, promising healing where God hasn't, guaranteeing the salvation of your household where God hasn't, declaring your breakthrough for the 100th time. I always thought if you had a breakthrough, you were through. I I didn't know you needed one of those every time there's a telephone. And assuring you that for the right gift for the next 15 minutes, God will override all of your bad decisions. You see, when we forfeit the power of the Spirit, we fall for anything. We fall for anything. And then we wonder why so many of our young people are walking away from the church. I'll tell you why they are. Because they see what's going on and they know it's not God. So don't condemn them. Ask yourself, have I contributed to what they've seen? We hear people talk about deconstructing their faith. In America, we've constructed a politically, racially compromised faith that bears little resemblance to the faith of the Bible, and we need to tear that down and replace it with God's truth. And let me just say again while I'm on my personal, gone off the deep end. You aren't going to find this in right or left. There was a right and a left in Jesus' day. Both of them wanted him crucified. So don't tell me the answer's in right or left. I, I look... God's statement in Ezekiel as to why he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. God said two reasons. One was their sexual immorality. The second was the fact that they were wealthy and prosperous and didn't take care of the poor people in their midst. The left preaches the first. The right preaches the second. Or I should put it this way. The left is guilty of the first. The right is guilty of the second. And neither one is going to bring the church to God. But either one will lead you away from God if you put your hope and faith there. Friends, let's get rid of this lie that America is God's favorite nation. Okay? America is Rome. What's the difference between America and Rome? Empire, wealth, most powerful military, schools without textbooks, but bombers that cost millions and millions of dollars. America is about power and money. It's always been about power and money. Oh, but our forefathers were Christian. Well, somebody should have told them you don't hold slaves. You don't practice chattel slavery if you're a Christian. They aren't the kind of Christians I would ever look up to. 
We've got to quit preaching this garbage. This is why our kids are leaving. They see through this crap. That isn't holiness. That isn't God. Maturity in personal life, effectiveness in ministry, never comes about through your best efforts. That's called flesh, and the Bible says the flesh profits nothing. The only things God will bless and empower are those things that have their beginning in him, and those things can be known, those things can be experienced, those things can be practiced. When the church fails, it never fails because it has no other choice. It fails because it had a choice, and it chose badly. It chose to go on its own rather than go with the power. Conversely, when the church succeeds as God deems success, it's because the church knows where the power is going and it goes with it. And my prayer is that that will be us and that it will always be us. Gracious Heavenly Father, in a day when discernment is so sorely lacking, grant us discernment to know the difference between flesh and spirit and to know where the power is going, and go with it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.